For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've spent the last couple of weeks studying events that took place over 4,000 years ago. The life of a great man named Abram, who later became known as Abraham. I've argued if you want to understand the rest of the Bible, you need to understand some things about Abraham, because things that happened in his life are foundational to the rest of it. We saw that God reached out to Abraham in ancient Mesopotamia and called him to leave his native country, to leave his family, to leave all of his security base and to travel over a thousand miles to a land that God was going to show him. God promised, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to give you this awesome land. What is today? The land of Israel. And as we read the rest of the Bible, we see that Abraham went on to become the father of the Jewish nation, the father of, the, of all Arabs, and the spiritual father of all Christians. But the only problem is, at this point, Abraham's not the father of anyone. He's into his 80s by now. His wife's in his 70s. They've probably been trying to have kids for 50 years. They've been waiting and waiting. Nothing is happening. So how's he going to be the father of a great nation? It's been probably five to ten years since God made that promise to Abraham and called him to leave his country and go to this land he would show him. He's been waiting this whole time. Nothing has happened on the front of having a son to become a great nation. And at this point, Abraham's pretty confused as to how God is going to work out these promises. You know, you wait, you know, God got his hopes up and he's waiting and nothing seems to be happening. Well, you know... Initially, maybe he thought that his nephew Lot was going to be his heir. He would have been a logical choice. Lot's dad died when Lot was younger. Abraham sort of took him in. But we saw in Genesis 13, Lot left Abraham to go down to live in Sodom to pursue money, pursue the world. You know, he, he almost got him back in Genesis 14, we saw last time, when Lot his city was attacked by four kings. They captured everyone in the city and all this stuff. They carried them off. Abraham rounded up his troops, attacked four powerful kings in the middle of the night. Surprise attack. He won the battle, rescued Lot, rescued all of the people of Sodom, all their stuff, brought him back. And Lot is just like, thanks a lot. See you later. And he heads back down to Sodom. So Lot is really not an option for Abraham's heir. If God's going to make him into a great nation, it's going to be through another direction. And that's where we pick up the story tonight. <clears throat> Genesis 15. After this, the word of Yahweh, that's God's name, Yahweh. The word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. And so God shows up with another message for Abram. These, there are a few of these recorded in Genesis, and this is one of them. After this, though, after what? What is he referring to? Well, what happened in chapter 14 when Abram attacked four powerful kings in the middle of the night and defeated them. After that, a surprise attack. And if you're Abram, how are you feeling after an event like this? How do you think he's feeling right now? I can tell you how I'm feeling. I'm feeling pretty scared. I'm scared that I just ticked off four powerful rulers and all their armies and they're going to be coming for me. You know, scared of those four powerful kings. At what point is he going to go to sleep one night in his tent 
And all of a sudden, he's going to wake up to the sound of hoofbeats and swords and cries of agony. It could happen any time. That's what happened already. And, you know, when you're sleeping in a tent, there's not much between you and the dangers outside. One Colorado teen discovered this just a few weeks ago. I don't know if you saw this headline in USA Today. The headline read, Teen wakes to crunching noise as bear drags him out of campsite by head. (laughs) Here's a picture of him. (laughs) He says, The crunching noise, I guess, was the teeth scraping against the skull as it dug in, Dylan told KMGH-TV. Okay, that's just a black bear, right, who's hungry. Abraham, is, what he's facing is danger so much more severe. This would have been scary at any moment. He could be destroyed. And so God comes to him after these events in a vision, and he says, Abram, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. And so God says, remember how I said I'm going to protect you if anyone tries to attack you? I still stand by that promise, Abram. And I am going to be able to protect you so much more than you ever could. Laying up anxiously, worrying, trying to fortify your your guards even more. God says, I am your shield, your very great reward. And this image of God as a shield becomes a very prominent one. God is our fortress. God is our place of refuge. God is our hiding place. God is our place of safety. We need to learn as we wait for God, as we wait on Him, That's part of how we learn to take our anxieties and bring them to him and claim his promises that he gives. To find him as our place of safety. That's the cure for anxiety. And God says, I'm your shield, your very great reward, Abram. But Abram said, Lord, sovereign Lord, he calls him. What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And so he calls him sovereign Lord. He knows things feel out of control, and he's he's reminding himself, he's calling God, you are the God who is sovereign over all. And yet God, he's he's genuinely questioning God here. Eliezer is right now, he's the guy who's set up to be my heir. This practice was confirmed in the 1920s for certain when an archaeological dig in the ancient city of Nuzi turned up over 5,000 tablets. And they show that the practices referred to, the legal practices in the book of Genesis, are exactly what was being practiced in that part of the world at that time, where if you didn't have a natural son, a biological son, you could adopt one of your servants, and he would be the heir. And so Eliezer of Damascus apparently is the best dude in Abraham's camp, and maybe he'd set up some sort of arrangement with him. Of course, the Newsy tablets also say if you'd make this adoption and then you have a natural son, then that's rendered null and void, and the the heir becomes your son. little archaeological point just confirming, these these customs we found confirm the validity and the accuracy of Scripture. Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so servant in my household will be my heir. And so he's wrestling with the promises of God. He's, this is genuine questions. This is not unbelief. He's like, God, you promised this, but what I'm experiencing is this. And I've been living in this tension for a while now, God. What is happening? It's not Lot. Is it Eliezer? Is that what you've got in mind here, Lord? You know, God never said, as far as we can read in Genesis, that Abraham's heir 
would be his biological son. God didn't say it wouldn't be, but he didn't say it would be either. He's left that sort of ambiguous. And now Abram is probing into that ambiguity. He's saying, is it really a biological son or is this some kind of legal error adoption thing? And so God clears up some of the ambiguity. He says, no, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now note the wording. He doesn't say anything about Abram's wife, Sarai. And he doesn't ask, but he, doesn't, he does say it will be your own flesh and blood who will be your heir. And then he took him outside and he said, Abram, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can even count them. And you know, this was before light pollution and smog and all the things today that ruin our night skies. And so he would have looked up and maybe a sky like this. And then God says, so shall your offspring be. Can you count them, Abram? One, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs> the point is, no, you can't. You can't. And he says, that's, that's what we're looking at here, dude. From your own flesh and blood to this, so shall your offspring be. And Abram does something very significant here that will be talked about for millennia to come. He believed Yahweh, and God credited it to him as righteousness. He says, okay, I believe you. I can't do it. You're going to have to do it. I, tr- I believe you, God. And this answers a very important question that religion grapples with. Religions are always trying to come up with this question right here. How do we get on God's good side? We feel a sense of guilt. And religion says you need to do good works. Even readers of the Bible after this continued to think, in some cases, you need to do good works to get on God's good side. Is it by following the rules? Well, it can't be that. The Bible's later going to point out this guy named Moses comes along hundreds of years later and lays down what's called the law and the Ten Commandments. This is way before that. He couldn't follow the Ten Commandments because there were no Ten Commandments. It wasn't by following the law. Is it by circumcision? Some Jews later would think in order to be right with God, you have to get circumcised. Well, this was before circumcision, over a decade before God gives them that ritual that would be observed by Jewish males from then on. Is it like religion thinks where you do a lot of religious works or religious rituals or try to be a good person? I think that's what most people would say. You know, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, if if they even believe in anything like that. How do we get on God's good side? According to this verse, it's none of those things. What God wants is not your good works because, honestly, you could never be good enough. Nothing short of perfection is good enough to satisfy God because that's the way He is. No, Paul says in Romans 4... Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. And what did he discover about being made right with God? Hmm. If good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And so right standing before God is not a matter of doing good works, but it's received as a gift from God. 
We place our trust in him, and he gives us his righteousness. That is God's way. And if, if it was any other way, we'd have something to boast about. That's one thing religious people are known for is boasting. And God says, no, there's no boasting. You, re- you get in as a free gift, just like everybody else gets in. Which is good news if you can admit that you need a handout. If you think you're pretty righteous, this can be a stumbling block and you need to come to grips with what God really requires, which is nothing short of perfection. God's grace is so inconceivable, so hard to to believe. It's so radical. And yet here it is, right on the pages of Scripture, argued from the very earliest chapters of Scripture. It's a gift received by faith. And ultimately, the reason God can give us right standing with him is because of what Jesus Christ did. He lived that perfect life we should have lived. He died for our sins on the cross. And it's by putting our trust in him that we're made right with God. This is what Abraham found here in Genesis 15. And then God says, I'm Yahweh. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of. So God points not just to the promise of a great nation, but now he says, also I promised you this land, Abraham. And Abraham has some questions about the land too, and God knows that. And Abraham says, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? This is also confusing. I've been living here, but there's all these other people who live here. So when am I going to get this land as my own? I mean, I've already waited several years. Is it going to be a whole other year or two? Or am I going to have to wait as long as five years to get this land? I'm getting old. God, I've been waiting. When am I going to get the land? Well, God was on a very different timeline, as is so often the case, than Abraham probably was. And God says, well... He says something that's going to sound very strange to us, but would have made total sense to Abraham. He says, go get a heifer, a goat, a ram, three years old each, and then a dove and a young pigeon. So Abraham's like, oh yeah, I know what's coming. (laughs) And so he goes and he spends, you know, the, the previous interaction was at night. It probably took him some part of the day to gather these animals together. He cut them in two. He arranged the halves opposite one another. He just seems to know what he's doing. The birds, obviously, he didn't cut in half, right? (laughs) So he kind of makes this hallway of death between the dismembered bodies of various animals. And um, this was how they made contracts back then, right? This is how they signed a contract, or, or a covenant, we've been calling it back then. You know, we sign on the dotted line. When they wanted to make a contract, they went and got an animal and ripped it in half. <laughs> did this ceremony, okay? And again, this is another one of these practices we find well attested to in archaeology. For example, here's an 8th century Assyrian text, 8th century BC, about a treaty that a guy named Mat- Matilu is making. And check out what it says. He sa- it, it says, this head is not the head of a lamb. It is the head of Matilu. If Matilu sins against this treaty, then just as the head of this spring lamb is torn off, 
so may the head of Matilu be torn off and his sons. <laughs> and so what they would do is both parties in the treaty, they would walk down through these carcasses and they would say, we will not break the treaty or we'll become like these animals. Now, you got to admit our way is a lot simpler and cleaner. Imagine what that line outside the student loan office would look like. You know, you got your FAFSA paperwork in one hand and then your lamb in the other hand. Dead bodies everywhere. But you know, their way was way more memorable. <laughs> You're not going to forget that too easily. Well, anyway, this is what God calls on from Abraham. He says, I'm going to make a covenant. Go get the animals. Abraham's like, yes. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then Yahweh said to him, he said, Abram, you know how you're asking more details about my timeline? Well, I'm going to tell you. I don't know how, I don't know how to break this to you. It's not going to be one, two, or five years. He says... Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there, predicting the whole sojourn down into Egypt that the Israelites would undergo. So he says, it's actually going to be 400 years at, at least until you get this land, really. I will judge the nation they serve as slaves. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. More predictive prophecy from the God who knows the future. He says, you, Abram, you know, you're going to go to your ancestors in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. You're, you're actually going to live peacefully here in this land. That's where your life is headed. Not going to be surprise attacked by four kings or anything like that. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Yeah, the sin of the Amorites, that was the wickedness of the people currently living in the land of Canaan where Abram was. God's like, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for some of them to have the chance to turn to me. You know, sometimes when we're waiting on God, and it seems like he's taking forever. It's the, he's not being slow, as some count slowness, but he's being patient. He's waiting for people to turn to him. And that's part of what was involved in this delay. And I don't know if you ever wonder why God doesn't tell you more details about his plans for your future. Sometimes you're like, God, where is this all headed? I've asked God that before. And sometimes God just doesn't tell. I'll give you two reasons why. One, it's because God knows what you really need. Is what you really need to immediately get what you want, is that really your greatest need in life? No, it's not. God knows that what you really need is you need to learn to trust him during the delay, to trust him to work out his plans, to trust that he's good, to trust in his promises, to wrestle through, to talk with him about the tension that you're living in between what you're feeling and experiencing and what he promises and where this is all headed. But no, God knows what you really need. And a second reason... God might not tell you more details is because there are times where you probably don't even want to know. Because what God is planning sounds completely crazy. It's something you couldn't understand right now even if you wanted to. It's, it's really will become clearer 
as time unfolds and as God prepares you for the things he has ahead. His plans not, might not even make sense right now to you. I know my wife and I would both say we're, we're glad God did not, we knew each other for about five years before we ever got together and got married. And both of us would say we're glad that God never told us we were going to marry the other person because that would have sounded crazy to each of us. We weren't ready for that. God sort of had to bring us each through our own paths to where this is something we really wanted and something that would be good. There's a lot of things in life that are like that. We're, you know, God's future plans for how he wants to use you, for the sorts of things he wants to do through you, might be pretty scary or might be a cause of pride, both of which would be bad. Now, God, sometimes it feels like you're walking into the fog and you just have to say, Sovereign Lord, I'm trusting you. I've got some honest questions, but I'm trusting you here. And to talk with God about the tension that you're feeling. So Abram, you know, the time comes for this, this treaty, this covenant, where they're supposed to walk through it together, but he fell into a deep, a deep sleep, almost like a trance. He's immobilized as the sun is setting. And then when the sun is completely set and darkness had fallen, God appears in the vision, a form of a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch. God will occasionally do this. He will show up. He will manifest his presence in a certain way. And he alone passed through the hallway of dead animals, making the treaty. And on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram. There's no more that Abram even can do to fulfill this treaty. God says, I alone, I'm going to fulfill this. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. And that, you can count on that. So Abram wakes up and heads back to camp. He probably found his wife and he was like, honey, guess what? God came and he spoke to me again. And I'm, I'm going to have a son of my own flesh and blood. Isn't that exciting news, Sarai? And she might have understandably been not that excited because that's an ambiguous promise as far as her end is concerned. He didn't say she's going to be involved. He didn't say she wouldn't. But she's got to be wondering, maybe I'm not part of this. Maybe this is just an Abram thing. Maybe I've been the problem this whole time. I'm the one holding back the work of God. And so it gets her thinking, and she comes up with a plan. Sometimes when you're waiting on God, you come up with a plan. It's a plan that it, there's no evidence she or Abram ever prayed about. I'm sure God would have talked with them about this if they had. But in Genesis 16, it says, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, right? But she did have an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Hmm. Yeah, this would have been probably someone she picked up that time that Abram went down to Egypt and tried to give his wife away? It's probably, probably someone that Pharaoh entrusted to her when he thought she was going to become his wife. And when they left, he just sent Hagar along with him. So, you know, Hagar is going to be a lot younger than Sarai. She's going to be in her, her peak childbearing years, I'm sure, probably fertile. And... Um, 
You know, back then, if you had a servant, you could get them to have a kid and then adopt it as your own. And Sarai goes to Abram and says, Yahweh has kept me from having children. Come on, let's be honest here. I'm, I'm 75. It's not going to happen. So, what do you think about this? Why don't you go sleep with my servant, Hagar, and perhaps I can build a family through her? Common practice back then, according to these archaeological finds, this was legally viable. And, you know, Abram's probably like, what? You want me to sleep with who? She's like, Hagar. And he's like, so you want me to go have sex with this other younger woman and you think this is God's will? And she's like, yes, exactly. And, guys, there are times in your marriage where you just need to be like, honey... We're not going to do this, okay? <laughs> Let's talk about why you came up with this, but how are you feeling? That's really the question you should have asked. <laughs> but <clears throat> he doesn't. He goes passive. And it says he agreed to what Sarah said. He's probably tired of waiting as well. He's 85. And so after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. She's pregnant, which just ratchets up the hostility in, in this household between Hagar and Sarah. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, Sarai. Sarai gets mad, and so she goes to Abram, and she says, you're responsible for this wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May Yahweh judge between you and me. And so, you know, he just responds with more passivity, and he's like, look, she's your servant. Do whatever you think is best. And so she starts mistreating Hagar. She's as nasty as possible to her. It gets so bad that Hagar leaves. She takes off. She runs away. And so here is Hagar out in the desert, alone, pregnant, single, scared, penniless, vulnerable, abused, homeless, not even a Jew, a foreigner out here in the middle of the desert. And this is what sets the stage for the first appearance in Scripture of the most important person in the history of the world. Verse 7 says, And the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, went out and found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Who's the angel of the Lord? He's not a normal angel. He calls himself God. He forgives people's sins. He accepts worship from people. Some th three things a normal angel would never do. That's why a lot of theologians think the angel of Yahweh is none other than Jesus Christ. God the Son showing up a handful of places in the Old Testament 
before he put on human flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, God the Son, the future eternal King of the world. And how does he make his first appearance? To a great king, to mighty Pharaoh, to the great Abraham? No, none of the above. It's to a woman, alone, pregnant, single, scared, penniless, vulnerable. She's been abused. She's homeless. She's a foreigner out in the middle of the desert. And I think it's fitting that she was the first one he came to in Scripture. Because people like this are the kind of people that he was going to seek out when he's here on earth. And this, this is the sort of life that he knew that he was going to one day live. He saw her pain, he heard her cries, and he came and he found her. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? Asking questions. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of Yahweh told her, you need to go back to your mistress and submit to her. It's not time to leave yet. You're pregnant. There may come a time later for that, but not now. And then he said, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Almost sounds like the promise to Abraham is going to go right down to Ishmael here. And he says, you're now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, for Yahweh has heard of your misery. Why did he pick the name Ishmael? It's because that word means God hears. And why did he choose that name for her son? I think it's because he wanted her to know that every time you say your son's name, I want you to remember that I hear your cries. I've always heard your cries. I've seen your whole life. I've never taken my eyes off of you. And I love you so much that I came out and found you when you had nowhere else to turn. And so she responded by giving this name to Yahweh, who spoke to her. She called him El Roy, which is Spanish for the Roy. <laughs> but in Hebrew, <laughs> it means you are the God who sees me. And then she said, for I have now finally seen the one who sees me. I don't know if any of you can relate to Hagar, any of those things on that list. That's how I felt when God came and found me. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. He says, I came for people who know they're sinners. He said, it's not, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the ones that know they are sick. Those are the sort of people he's coming for. 
If you can relate to her, you're, you're in good company. You're the kind of person that might have an easier time responding to Christ. Well, it says that's why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. The word beer, because in Hebrew the word well is beer, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> and it means the well of the God who sees me. And you know, it's not the only time Jesus is going to meet a woman at the well, right? But it is the first. And she listens and she goes back to camp. And it says that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So finally, he's got a son. His name means exalted father. And he's finally got a son. He's finally a father after all those years of waiting. And 13 years pass between Genesis 16 and 17. Ishmael grows up. He's becoming a man. Everyone is just assuming that Ishmael is the answer to all of God's promises, the one who's going to have so many descendants he won't be able to count them. And then God shows up and throws a wrench in all of their plans. Genesis 17, we'll move through this chapter a little more quickly. Abram was 99 years old. And Yahweh appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, the Powerful One. Another name for God here. And he said, Abram, look, no longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father. He says, your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. Not just one, many nations. He says, there is something I need you to do now, from now on. You are to undergo circumcision. I'm not going to go into details on this. It's a surgical procedure on part of the male anatomy. And he says, it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who's eight days old must be circumcised. And this is where God institutes the practice of circumcision, a practice that Jews still follow today. Fortunately, Abraham was, a lot more, Abraham was a lot more than eight days old, and um, he's still going to need to get circumcised. <clears throat> There's a big difference between circumcision when you're eight days old and circumcision when you're 36,135 days old. <laughs> he says, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. She gets a new name too. No, her name will be Sarah, which means princess. And I will bless her, and I will surely give you a son by her. You and your wife are going to have this son. What a surprise. I'll bless her, so she'll be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will flow from her. You're going to be the father of many nations. She's going to be the mother of nations. Well, this is too much for Abram to take. And he fell face down and he laughed. And he said to himself, 
Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Come on, God. You can't keep putting us through this. You're getting our hopes up, and we just wait and nothing happens. Look, we got Ishmael, right? If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. God, he's arguing with God. And God says, yeah, he will. He'll be under my blessing. But your wife Sarah will bear you a son. And you will call him Isaac. You know what Isaac means? He laughs. <laughs> God says, every time you say your son's name, I want you to remember how ridiculous you thought this was that I would keep my promises. How funny it was that a 100-year-old guy and a 90-year-old woman would have a kid. That's going to be your son's name from now on. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, I've heard you, I'll bless him, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. We finally have a date. The waiting's over. One more year. And so Abram has a choice to make here. On the one hand, as Romans 4 says, you've got the fact that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Those were the plain human realities of the situation. On the other hand, you've got the clear promise of God. And let's not forget the costly step of faith involved in this. Now, at least the waiting's over, but there's a pretty steep hurdle to clear of circumcision in a time before modern anesthesia and medicine and all that, I mean, is it really true that the path for him to have a son, that the best thing he can do is perform a delicate operation on the part of the male anatomy that's kind of most important in having a son? That's what God is calling him to do. And then have a kid less than a year from now. There would have been some wrestling here, out here alone with God Almighty. Some wrestling after God left him to consider the scale, the weight of evidence. And what does he do? Romans tells us. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. His faith, from laughing a few verses ago, as he really thought through it, he talked some truth to himself. And he realized that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. This is God Almighty. And that's what we need to remember when we're waiting on God. This is God Almighty that we're dealing with. Is anything too difficult for him? And so Abram goes back to camp that very day and probably said something like this. Hey, guys. God visited me again. And he said that I have to change my name. From now on, you're going to call me Father of Many. Even though only I'm, I'm currently only Father of One. And my wife, we're going to call her Princess from now on.
And he said that me and Princess here... are finally going to have a son. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did too. I laughed. <laughs> and then God said, that's what you're going to name your son. <laughs> I know. All that's left for me to do is to circumcise myself. <laughs> and all of you... Right now, <laughs> this very day. <laughs> and Abraham took his son Ishmael, and every male in his household and circumcised them, just like God told him. <laughs> Whoa! All right. Waiting on God. You know, we see two pictures here. I'll just briefly draw a couple of lessons. Galatians 4 says Ishmael represents a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise, a shortcut in the waiting. And Isaac was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. Two very different approaches here. And so in these two boys, we learn some lessons about waiting on God in the life of Abram. We've seen that he won't usually give you all the details ahead of time. And we need to be content with walking into the fog, having the next step lit up for us when we need to take it. That honest questions are good. God is perfectly willing to dialogue with him and others when they have questions about, what, God, what are you doing here? We've seen there will be steps of faith. There were plenty of those along the way for Abraham, including kind of a couple of big ones. It's not a passive thing, waiting on God. In fact, there's often a struggle to believe, a tension, a wrestling between what God has promised and what I'm experiencing. And as the days turn into weeks, turn into months, turn into years, sometimes turn into decades, that can get pretty painful. Waiting is not passivity. It can be possibly, it'll be some of the most agonizing wrestling in your spiritual life between what I'm feeling and experiencing on the one hand and the promises of God on the other hand. Taking things into your own hands never helps. There are no shortcuts. Shortcuts make for long delays when it comes to this sort of thing. But waiting is so worth it because it's through waiting that we learn who God really is in a way we never could if we never had to wait. We learn that he's our shield when we're anxious. We learn... That he's the sovereign Lord when things seem completely out of control. We learn that he's the God who sees and who hears our struggle. And finally, we learn that he's God Almighty who's able to come through on all of his promises. And those are the lessons on waiting on God from the life of Abraham. Yes, Lord, thank you that you are our shield. You're you're the God who sees and hears, and you're the Almighty God. Um, God, you, you are the God that gives grace. Thank you for these clear statements of grace, even way back here in the early pages of the Old Testament. That's not about our works and all the good things we do, but it's about you making your promises and keeping your promises and staking your honor on that. 
I pray for anybody here who is, who's never come to Christ, who's never come into a relationship with Jesus, that they would receive his grace tonight, that they would lay aside their, attempt, their pride and their attempts to do works to earn your acceptance, and they would instead open their hands and receive your grace freely. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.